Welcome, everyone. We are glad that you are here. We're going to be in Romans chapter 2 this morning, if you'd like to turn there. And the title of our sermon is Inescapable Judgment and Unimaginable Opportunity. Those may seem like two things that don't really go together, judgment and opportunity. But in these four verses we're going to consider this morning, it certainly does. Uh, It just feels like it's been a bit of a sober week. Um, We've already touched on it this morning. Um, A very appropriate reading from a very appropriate sermon um, for our time. Um, Threats of nuclear war. um, uh, Ugly racism that has been um, a problem in our country for a long time. We bring those things in here. And what I want to encourage us to do is the same thing that Kyle mentioned earlier is um, let's consider how the word speaks to that. that. That's the best approach that we can do. And I also want you to know, because there are some things that almost seem too, um, like, oh, interesting that that happened on that day. It, it almost seems really intentional. I want you to know that it's not intentional on my part. But Tim Keller mentions that if you preach through verse by verse, which is what we do here at Crosspoint, it allows God to set the agenda for your community, for your church. And that's what we've done. And so this sermon was prepared largely, it was largely finished on Thursday, and um, we'll talk about it a little more in a moment, but it's amazing the timeliness of God's word. It's something that we get to be reminded of all the time. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in and, uh, and consider God's design for his people this morning. Let's pray. Lord, you are very good to us. Um, you are great, and you are greatly to be praised. Lord, I'm thankful that that is an unshakable reality, no matter how shakable our realities sometimes seem. Lord, I'm thankful uh, for the fact that as we gather here this morning, you are present with us, that we're not just going through motions, we're not just doing silly religious activities, but in fact, we are um, engaging the living God according to his design. And the fact that you have made a way for us to do that in Christ is, is really quite unimaginable. It's hard to wrap our heads around. Lord, as we do every Sunday, we want to pray for our other local churches in the area. Particularly, I pray for Cornerstone Fellowship, for Trent Brown. Uh, I pray that um, they are enjoying you this morning there in Caddo, Mills, and Royce City area. And uh, that you would be glorified in their gathering, that he would be exposing the word um, that he's enjoyed in spending time with you this week. Lord, we pray for our uh, local city officials as they make decisions that affect the way this community um, either flourishes or doesn't flourish, and, and we hope for flourishing. We hope for more than just general flourishing. We hope for a community where the gospel can flourish. And so we pray that you, knowing that even kings are like water in your hands, we pray that you would guide them, instruct them, admonish them, encourage them, so that they make decisions uh, in keeping uh, with a very good God who has a very good plan for his creation. Lord, we humble ourselves before you this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 2, 1 through 4 says this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Um, I've had an interesting couple days on on, uh, Saturday, yesterday, uh, we had some, some of our kids' soccer games, and I left my phone at home. So if you ever want a more relaxing day, leave your phone at home. Um, it was actually kind of nice, but I was totally out of touch with everything that was going on in the world on Saturday, and there were a lot of things going on in the world on Saturday. And so I left my phone at home and didn't have any contact with anything going on. And then we got home last night, and the storms had knocked out our internet and our cable and our TV, so I didn't have any news or anything. And so I worked on my sermon for a couple hours and, and woke up this morning and I picked up my phone to go ahead and check some things and I start reading in the news about what happened in Virginia. And then I have some emails and some communication from church members with some questions and some encouragements and some thoughts. 
And I'm sitting here going, okay, um, this, is, this is major. For, for those who don't know, um, yesterday in Virginia, there were some white supremacy rallies. Um, and there were some counter-protesters. And then in the mix of all the craziness, there was a car that was driven into people. People died. Many were injured. And the racism that's so rampant and has been so rampant in our country was just brought to the forefront yet again. And it was an ugly thing. It's heartbreaking. I almost titled this week's sermon, um, Jewish Privilege, because it speaks to racism. What I just read about was one race essentially looking at another race and saying, we're held to a different standard than you are. And so this morning at about 6 a.m., I thought, well, that's not a coincidence. We're in Romans 2 talking about races that are not getting along, one that thinks they are superior to another and that it's okay to have double standards. So I thought we need to consider some other details in light of where we are. And so there's a couple things that I want to encourage you in before we dive in. There's two things that are really important any time that we gather to open the Word. And one is the validity of the Word. Some people ask the question, is this still valid? Is this old manuscript still valid for us today? And I think the, the resounding answer is yes. When I started Romans 1 last year, I literally preached the first message in Romans 1. The next week, gay marriage was legalized. And then we continued in Romans, which talks about those very things in that chapter. This sermon was prepared largely and finished largely on Thursday, and then now we're looking at something going on in our world with, with racism and with one race feeling superior and elite and privileged over another. So be encouraged that indeed God's word is valid. It speaks so, more directly to our circumstances than anything else can. And the other thing is we want God's word to be valid, and we also want to know that the Holy Spirit actually does something. The Holy Spirit's timing is something that we get the most feedback on in our preaching. When we preach a message, most of the time, most of the feedback is, good night. Hey, guys, thanks for that. That was timely. Well, that's the one thing the preacher has no control over. We can't read minds. We do not know the future. And so that's God's design. So as we engage the word this morning, we do so in a setting where it is utterly valid and the Holy Spirit is actively at work. So I encourage you to consider what the Word says about our circumstances this morning out of Romans chapter 2. As we dive back into Romans 2 this morning, I cannot stress enough the importance of context. We have our context, but the Bible always has a context in which it was written to particular people, by particular people, at a particular time. And here's, here's what we have to see this morning as we dive into this. If we don't get the context right, we can end up drawing conclusions from this passage that aren't even close to being the main point. They'd be good food for thought, they'd be good, good for a devotional, but if we don't get context right, we will end up with some conclusions that aren't even close to what the main point of this passage is. All of Romans 2 falls within a section of scripture that started in 118 and doesn't end until 320. So we're literally parachuting into the middle of a conversation in the middle of a conversation with these four verses we're looking at. So context is important. So this whole section that we're looking at a small piece of started in chapter 1, verse 18, and doesn't end until 3.20. So to understand this, look with me at Romans 1, 16 and 17, just the page before. Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, and he makes this huge statement in these two verses that are essentially the main point of the whole letter. And he says in 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is like the main point, the thesis of the letter. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone. Every Jew, every Gentile, Every person of every race, there is no salvation outside of faith in the good news of Jesus Christ. So Paul's writing to this new church in Rome, a young church, first century church, made up of Jews and Gentiles, and he's stating emphatically, let me be clear up front, everybody needs Jesus. 
Salvation comes in no other way than through Jesus. So that's the main point. That's all of your hope, all of your faith must be placed squarely on Jesus for your salvation. Everyone needs salvation, and salvation can only be found in Christ. So that's this main point. And then we start this section in 118 through 320 where he's proving his point. Have you ever done that where you make a point and then you start talking afterwards to prove your point? That's all that Paul's doing here. He makes this big point, and then 118 through 320 is, let me prove it to you. So he's explaining why and how everyone has come to a point where they need Jesus. And so in in January of this year, we started the first six weeks of this year in 118 through 132, which explains that God's wrath is towards unrighteousness. If you've ever wondered about God's anger, like, is he just a capricious God? Does he just get mad at random things and sling thunderbolts down at whoever kind of upsets him in the moment? No, God's wrath, God's anger is very particular, and it's towards unrighteousness. And the reason that it's towards unrighteousness is because unrighteousness suppresses truth, and God is all about the forward movement of his truth because he loves truth and he loves his people. And so that's what we engaged in the, first, or the second part of the first chapter on this argument where Paul's making um, the point on why everyone needs Jesus. God has made this world and all of his created beings in a way that what can be known about God is plain to everyone. But instead of walking in truth, humanity, of which all of us are part, has exchanged the truth about God for a lie and we have worshipped and we have served creation rather than our creator. So what Paul first explains is a group of people who all need Jesus who have rejected God and been given to a lifestyle of what he calls dishonorable passions and unnatural relations and a host of other vices um, that are listed in 128. So start, look at 128 because this is going to be, anytime we see over the course of this morning the word practice, this is the practice that's being referred to. So look at 128 so we can understand who these people are that need Jesus and why they need Jesus. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. In case the vice list doesn't include enough vices, he throws in inventors of evil because he knows we will come up with something new that's not in the list and try to say, well, it's not in the list. So he puts inventors of evil on there. Disobedient to parents. The first time I read that as a young kid, I thought, is this like the parent edition? Because that, I mean, you're all, you're all been murder, evil, gossip, and disobedient to parents. No, it turns out that's something that God cares deeply about, kiddos. So it's speaking to you as well. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And then it says this. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. So they know, just by looking at creation, just by a law that's in fact written on their hearts, which we're going to engage in the next couple weeks, they know that there is a righteous decree from God that people who do those things deserve to die, but they love doing those things so much that they disregard that fact. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and you know what? What would make me feel even better is if other people joined me in doing all these things. And so it says they not only do those things, but they give approval to those who do such things. This is a a group that's pretty godless. They've turned away from their creator, and they're moving in vile wickedness. Which brings us to our text this morning. So right out of that, it says, therefore, remember, Howard Hendricks tells us, anytime you see the word therefore, what's the therefore, therefore? It's pointing to something before and probably something after. So therefore, they're doing all these horrible, wicked, vile things. Therefore, you, he's changing his audience here, have no excuse. Oh, man, in case you thought you were God, let's label you man. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh, man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So I want you to imagine this setting Paul uses a, a rhetorical device called diatribe, where he like asks a question and then answers it, and you said this, but what I say this, but God said, and so it's kind of this triangular, maybe at times more circular reasoning, 
And sometimes all the pronouns can get a little bit confusing. Like, who is they, them, he, I, we, she? What is going on? And here, he's speaking particularly to those who are judging those whom Paul has condemned. And if you look over in verse 17, it says, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, so it's most likely that he's speaking to the Jews here. So he's speaking largely to maybe a Gentile context in chapter 1, and then he's speaking largely to the Jews in chapter 2. But the thing is, this is a Christian church now in Rome. So anything that is said to a Jew is spoken to a Jew and a Gentile. And anything that is spoken to a Gentile is spoken to a Jew and a Gentile. So we don't have to be too narrow in our categories, but it's helpful for us to understand who is he turning to, because something happens here. So imagine the setting. This letter is being read aloud to the church in Rome. And as it's being read aloud, you can picture this growing and well-founded accusation made against those who have traded the truth about God for a lie. Homosexuality is rampant. Fleshliness is rampant. Um, uh, all kinds of hatred and, and debauchery and um, shamelessness is, is rampant. And so Paul is making this case. And as it is made, you have this other group over here looking at what Paul is explaining and they're going, yes, Paul. What shameful people those people are. They are so dirty. And it's kind of like the record scratch, like, excuse me? Paul, in, this, in his letter, literally, is, is emphatically proving this point that they need Jesus and that the gospel is the only thing that can save them from this life. And then there's this group over here saying, yeah, they're horrible. Yeah, they're ugly. Yeah, that's wrong. And Paul's like, hold the phone. Are you serious right now? And so he looks at his, he, he gives his attention to this group over here and he says, excuse me, at least the first group was consistent, right? They know that what they're doing is wrong and they give approval to others to do the same thing. But you, you know that what you're doing is wrong, but you condemn it in other people. You're a hypocrite. That, that's hypocritical. That's called a double standard. That's why hypocrisy infuriates all of us so much, because it's a double standard. Why do I have to be held to a different standard than you do? So Paul is calling this out in this group. You're hypocrites. You have double standards. And you and your judgment stand just as condemned as those whom you condemn. So let's consider a couple of illustrations. First, it doesn't take years of wisdom and experience to understand hypocrisy and double standards, right? Do your children hate injustice as much as mine do? Try to give only one of your children a cookie. Just one. And all of a sudden, your children will care deeply about justice. That is not fair. Why does he get a cookie? We are all your children. Why should we not all get cookies, Father? And all of a sudden, they're, they're uh, making their case because they're all about justice. Or maybe even more than that, just try to give only one of your children, just make one of them do chores. Right? Why do I have to do it? That's not fair. Or, even worse, try to make all of your children do chores except for one. They will turn on the one. They will turn because injustice, that is not fair. That's a double standard. Why do I have to do something that they don't have to do? It was my wife and I had some funny conversations this week about all the, I was like, what are some examples of hypocrisy? We found ourselves talking for hours. There is so much hypocrisy that it's not hard to find examples, but I'm going to take an easy shot at an easy target. So one example of hypocrisy that might be familiar to us adults there's a guy named Al Gore, who is Mr. Climate Crisis. It started out as climate change, which some of you may believe in, some of you may not. It really doesn't matter this morning. So please don't leave here with some chip on your shoulder about what may seem to be my view on climate. But he doesn't call it climate change anymore. He calls it climate crisis. And when someone said, well, Al, why do you, or Mr. Gore, why do you call it climate crisis instead of climate change? He said, because that's what it is, a climate crisis. And he said it about four times slower than what I just said. 
A recent article, like last week, uh, was released that says that Al Gore's 10,000-plus square foot Tennessee home guzzles more electricity in one year than the average family uses in 21 years. The electricity used just to heat Gore's swimming pool would power six homes for a year. It's an easy target, right? And then he actually says that he buys back, he, he, he invests $437 a month to buy back his carbon footprint from companies that erase carbon footprints. I'm like, that's like the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? Like, there's other people that are going to be responsible for taking care of my problem. I'm going to give them, I mean, I'm sitting here going, that's like penance. That it, he, he has a religious system to, to buy back for his sins. But he still says, you guys have got to make some changes because this is a crisis. I'm keeping my pool, but this is a crisis. I'm going to keep all the homes. It's just a crisis. I'm going to fly my jet to talk about it, but this is a crisis. You guys need to change. And it's an easy thing because everyone says, why should I be held to a standard that you're not held to? But here's what's interesting. The big issue of climate crisis is drowned out by hypocrisy. That's actually what's happening in Romans chapter 2. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is calling out this group's hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is bad. Has anyone ever met another church person that you feel might have been hypocritical at some point in y'all's experience? Has anybody ever? Okay, well, like three of us have had that experience. So if anyone needs to talk about that after the service, just come to the three of us and we can explain to you what that might look like theoretically. Paul is calling out their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is bad. Later on in the chapter, he explains how the name of God is blasphemed among Gentiles because of the Jews' hypocrisy. It would be like saying, the name of God is blasphemed among unbelievers because all the church people are hypocrites. You're saying one thing and doing another and trying to hold what you're saying as a standard for other people, and you're not living up to the same standard. People see through that like that. Our children can see through that. It is not hard. It is not complex. It is not difficult. It's obvious because it's ugly. So hypocrisy is bad. But that's why context is important, because that's not the main point of this text. Like, I could have a full-on anti-racism hypocrisy message today that would be, like, true. But that's not the main point. The hypocrisy is drawing people's attention away from the main point that Paul is making. The big issue is being drowned out by hypocrisy. Hypocrisy in the church is horrible, but the main point here is this. Judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. That's Paul's main point that he's making here. Judgment is coming, but what he's doing is he's using their hypocrisy as a vehicle to get to the gospel. So he's not going to let the main point be drowned out because judgment is coming. Look at verses 2 through 3. It says, We know... That the judgment of God, right before that it says, for in passing judgment on another, you, uh, the judge, practice, practice the very same things. When you hear practice, I want you to like tune in. You practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls. And when that says rightly falls, it means according to the facts, according to truth. Like God will make a case and he will judge accordingly. And he does so with facts, not just with uh, presumption, supposition, and maybe a, a feeling. It's facts. We know that judgment rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things, that you who do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? So consider those repeated words. Paul's doing this for emphasis. It's on purpose. Those who practice such things. So these guys in particular are guilty of things, So he, he's turned from one, the end of chapter 1 to the beginning of chapter 2, and these guys are guilty of things like envy, murder, deceit, strife, gossip, pride, heartlessness, and faithful, faithlessness. Paul's aim here is this. Paul's aim is to hope that their hypocrisy doesn't lead them to a false conclusion that they don't really need Jesus. That's the main point. We got to kind of dig through some stuff to get to that this morning, but he doesn't want their hypocrisy to lead them to the wrong conclusion that they don't actually need Jesus because that's where they're sitting right now as he's addressing them. 
It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew. Judgment is coming. That's the first main point this morning. It's a two-point sermon in case you're wondering. The first main point is God's righteous judgment is inescapable. It does not matter who you are, where you live, what your race is, Jew, Gentile, or anything else. God's righteous judgment is coming. It is inescapable. Their hypocrisy might lead others astray, but what Paul's more concerned about is that their hypocrisy is definitely leading them astray. You see that? Do you take that angle when you see hypocrisy? Like, oh, your hypocrisy is leading you astray. Oftentimes, I just get mad. So there's this possibility that their hypocrisy could lead someone else astray, but what he's addressing is the fact that their hypocrisy is leading them astray. It's kind of a tricky passage to to get through because we have to see that reality. So listen to how he explains it to the hypocrites. He accuses them of supposing and presuming. So if you're taking notes, write that God's righteous judgment is inescapable and then write supposing and presuming because that's how they got to where they are. Look at verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? This is remarkable. What what he is saying that they are doing is this divine infraction and wrong in the universe that is bigger than maybe any other wrong in the universe. It's a big, big statement. What he's saying is this. They are supposing that they, for some reason, won't be held to the same standards as the Gentiles. These Jews, in this context, in the church in Rome, are looking at the Gentiles and saying, we will not be held to the same standard as those guys. They're supposing that they can practice the same things. Because remember, you practice these. This is what you do. You practice these things. They think they can do the same things that they're doing, but that they won't be held accountable in the same way. That they won't be held to the same rule. Here's what's happening. Please pay attention here. Because when we assume such things, and we're going to talk about the application later, but they are supposing that this thing can happen that was never supposed to happen. They're actually looking at God and saying, God, I expect you to change the way that you have interacted with your creation from the beginning of time. That you would literally change the rules of the universe, God. God, that you would literally interrupt the rules of divine judgment so that the one who created all of us would make exceptions for the Jews that he wouldn't make for others. They're looking at God and saying that. that you, God, we expect you will interrupt the divine rules of judgment that have always existed because you're God and we're not. We expect that that will happen so that we can do what we want when we want, so that we can be an exception to the rule, that God would in fact move then in unrighteousness, that God would move in partiality, and that God would move in injustice. That's what they're asking for here. We can do what we want to do and God's not going to judge us because we're assuming that he's cool with unrighteousness and partiality and injustice. Just so that we can do what we want without being troubled with repentance and judgment and Jesus. That's what's going on here. Why would they say such a thing? Well, verse 4 tells us it's because they're also presuming They're supposing that this is true because they're presuming something. And verse 4 says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? These Jews are on the receiving end of some pretty spectacular things. They have the riches of God's kindness, the riches of God's forbearance, the riches of God's patience. But they're presuming that they're already saved which means they're presuming that they don't need Jesus to be saved. That's why the gospel is so desperately needed by them. That's why Paul sticks to the gospel. We're already saved, so we don't need Jesus to be saved, which means that they don't need to repent to be saved, right? Because they have special favor and privilege because of their status as God's chosen people. They are presuming that because God has not judged them yet, that he never will, and they have never been in greater peril because of it. Do you see that? They're sitting here saying, he's been so kind to us. He's not going to judge us. Look look around. 
We're the chosen people of God. We have Father Abraham. We're the ones. We're the winning team. He hasn't judged us yet, and he's just not going to. They think they have special favor, but no one has special favor. Because God judges according to works, which is what we're going to talk about next week. They're presuming that because God has not judged them yet, that he never will. Was this just a little random rogue group in Rome? I mean, is this, this is a major problem, but was this like an isolated incident? And the reality is no. If we read through the Gospels, we find a lot. I just want to look at one together. Turn to John 8. This is what Ben has referred to as the revival that has gone bad. Ben's used the illustration of you can see these guys like filling out their, their, their cards with the little stubby pencils. And it just goes south because Jesus keeps talking. Like if Jesus would just stop talking, they're, they're believing. We got, the, we got them. They're in. But he's addressing a deeper issue here in John 8. So look at 8.24. Jesus is explaining that he is the light of the world. And, and in, in 24, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. They're practicing sin. They're practicing things that deserve death, that deserve the wrath of God because it's towards unrighteousness, because their practicing is suppressing truth. And so here, he's saying, I told you that you would die. And some of them said, I believe you, Jesus. And it says in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. Well, this seems to be going well, right? This is good. He says, you need me, and there's no hope outside of me, and you got to move away from the practice of sinning. And some of them said, we believe you. We believe in you. And look what it says in 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, that's, that's Ben's illustration of they had already filled out the card, and the card was sitting there with the pencil on it, and they had already believed in him. And Jesus says to those Jews, similar to the ones in Romans 2, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, whoa, <laughs> free? We're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? We don't need to become free. We are free. We're in. We're part of the team. We're the Jews. And he says, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices, there it is again, sin is a slave to sin. He's saying you're viewing it all wrong. You're, you're thinking you're not enslaved to people. What I'm talking about is your sin. You're enslaved to your sin because you don't have Jesus. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham. He's like, I know, I know who your dad is. This is the epitome of do you know who my dad is moment, right? Has anyone, have you ever seen anyone get in trouble for something and they're getting called out on it? And they're like, do you know who my dad is? My dad's a very important person. And maybe you should watch the way you talk to me. And I, I, I'm above this. Do you, know, do you know who my dad is? And they're saying, we're Father Abraham's children. Do you know Father Abraham? Because I belong to him. And Jesus says, I know that you're the offspring of Abraham. I get it. I know that you're the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Well, how did he know that? Because he's Jesus. He knew what was in their heart. And in verse 38, he says, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So Jesus draws this distinction. He says, I'm doing, do you know my dad? Okay, good. I'm doing what my dad says I should do. You are doing what your dad says you should do. He draws a distinction. There's a difference. And they answered him, Abraham's our father. I mean, you can almost see him looking at each other like, this guy's driving me nuts. This Jesus guy, he's just, he doesn't get it. I belong to father Abraham. Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, 
a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works of your father. So again, they're like, what? Our father is Father Abraham. And he says, no, 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 no. But you are doing the works of your father. And then he does the second, you are doing the works of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We were not conceived out of some kind of wedlock thing. This, this, is, this is, we have one father, even God. So the Abraham card didn't work. So they played the God card. And Jesus is like, hold on, let me clear things up. If God were your father, you would love me. For I have come from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he, God, who you say is your father, sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You cannot bear to hear that you are indeed a slave to your sin who needs to be freed from your sin. You cannot bear it. So Jesus wants to make it very clear. You the reason that you are doing what your father says, the reason that you are doing exactly what your father has told you to do, isn't because your father's Abraham. And it's not because your father is God. Your father is the devil. <laughs> wow. Like, the mic drop. He just said that. He said, oh yeah, I know your dad. The devil. Like, imagine if someone said that to you. Like, just imagine what that must have felt like for them to hear that from Jesus, nonetheless. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and he's the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, remember, God loves truth and hates unrighteousness because unrighteousness suppresses truth. You do not believe me because I tell you the truth. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not from God. So the whole situation here is the same in Romans 2. They're saying, hey, we're good. And Jesus is saying, no, you're not. They're saying, no, 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 you don't understand. We're on the same team. Jesus says, no, you're not. They're saying, we're in, man. Back off. And Jesus says, the problem is you're not in. The chapter goes on to where they put down the pencils and they pick up rocks and they look at Jesus Christ who was there to bear their sins. And they say, you must have a demon. This guy has a demon. This guy, Jesus, has a demon. Let's kill him. And they pick up stones and go to kill him. And Jesus flees. That's how they responded to the truth. They were saying, we're good, we're in, we're, we're in the clear. And Jesus says, no, you're not. This is exactly what was happening back in Romans 2. Turn back to Romans 2. They're saying, I'm a Jew. I'm already saved, Paul. I have the covenants, the promises, the circumcision. I have Father Abraham. I have the law. I have God. I don't need your Jesus. And Paul, just like Jesus, is saying, your suppositions and your presumptions are wrong. You're not okay. I love you enough to tell you you're not okay. This is the gospel message. Judgment is coming, and Jesus is your only hope. These Jews had lost sight of something very important that had been there from the beginning, but they had lost sight of it. God's favor has always meant to bring about obedience in the lives of his people. That's why the way we live matters. God's favor, his love, his kindness, his patience has always, from the beginning, it's not just a New Testament concept, has always meant to bring about obedience in the lives of his people. But for the Jews, many of them had a line of thinking that crept in over the years. This ancient belief was referred to as covenantal nomism. And essentially, what it was, this is a way of thinking that crept in, and scholars have studied it, and they're trying to, the, like in this verse, and saying, well, here's what's going on. Essentially, what they believed was as long as you're part of God's covenant people, and as long as you had an intention to obey his ways, you just had to have an intention, then you're good to go. I don't need Jesus. I'm on the team, and I intend to obey. Essentially, I'm already saved, so what I do doesn't matter as much. That's the problem that Paul's addressing. But this was a flawed way of thinking from whenever it crept into the ancient mindset. You don't have to turn there. 
But Leviticus is a very bloody book. It's all about the sacrifices and what is needed to please God. And God's making a point through it. But in Leviticus 18, 1 through 5, it says this. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt. It's not okay for you to be like the Egyptians. So when you get there, don't be like the Egyptians where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I'm bringing you. So when you get to Canaan, it's not okay for you to live like the Canaanites. I've got a different plan. And the reason for that is that I am your God. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Essentially, God has always said to his people, I didn't make you my people so that you wouldn't have to obey. That's backwards. I didn't make you my people so that you wouldn't have to obey. I did it so that my favor would bring about obedience. It's not okay for you to think that God cannot have expectations of you. I am your God. Therefore, you shall live by my rules, Israel. I think this is why Jesus was so emphatic in John 8 to say, No, you are doing what your father does. And your father's the devil, because had their father been God, had they been as they should be as his people, had they belonged to God, they would have been abiding by God's design. This is the way it has always been. Amos 3.2 says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. You're special. <laughs> like he's saying that. He's saying, you only have I known Israel, ethnic Israelites, who I have called my own. You only have I known in all the earth. Therefore, I will punish all of your iniquities. It's like a good father. He was not going to raise a bunch of entitled brats who are okay with hypocrisy and double standards and privilege and arrogance and supremacy towards other people. I will punish you for all of your iniquities. The mistake that the Jews made in Romans 2 was the, pre, uh, the presumption that because God has made us his, he will not punish us for our iniquities. That's where they were sitting. And that's why Paul says, hold on, let's talk about that. They thought that because we belong to God, he won't punish us. And the result wasn't an increase in holiness. The result was an increase in iniquity. When they made the, the conclusion, we belong to God, so he's not going to punish us for our iniquity, interestingly, iniquity just increased. Sinfulness became more and more and more, and Paul sees it clearly, and he zeroes in on it, and he tries to speak the loving truth to them, which leads us to our second main point of the morning, and the last point. Make sure you're in Romans 2, because you're going to want to look at this. In the face of judgmental hypocrisy and sin, God offers kindness. Let me say that again. Consider what, what the word has explained this morning. Consider the attitude and the heart of, and the wickedness of these people towards their creator. So the judgment of God is inescapable. And in the face of inescapable judgment, and the reality of that, and in the face of this judgmental hypocrisy and sin, God offers kindness. Guys, this has to inform us this morning. We have to understand it here. We have to understand it here. He offers kindness and the riches of his kindness and the riches of his forbearance and the riches of his, his patience. He offers these guys the unimaginable opportunity of being led to repentance. Can we appreciate this morning what a scandal that is? Can we appreciate and marvel together at the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That the unrighteous and judgmental and the hypocrites and the ones that have double standards and the ones that are arrogant and the ones that act like they are supreme and the ones that are, are acting privileged over and above other people, that they don't have to pay for the penalty of their sins. The wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. And so in that reality, God says, I'm going to come to you with kindness. This is so beyond what any human being would come up with. He comes to them in kindness. 
God offers through your repentance and faith in Christ that in fact Christ would pay the penalty for your sins. He's looking at those who are living in rampant sexual immorality in chapter 1 and he's saying Jesus will pay for those sins. He's looking at the judgmental hypocrites in chapter 2 say, hey, Jesus will pay for those sins if you will by faith come to him and repent. We've lost something if we can't marvel at that. We've lost something when that becomes so common that it doesn't affect our hearts and our minds and the way that we view other people, the way that we view our sin and the way that we view theirs. God offers that through repentance and faith in Christ, Christ pays the penalty for your sins. Christ takes your sin upon himself on the cross, and Christ bears that inescapable wrath of God through judgment. This is why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Remember, that was Paul's main point. Why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone. This is why everyone needs Jesus, because Jesus is the only one who, with perfect righteousness, and through repentance, through your repentance, and through your faith in Christ, his perfect righteousness, he's the only one who has it, is counted as yours. Marvel at that. The Jews thought that their imperfect sacrifices would be sufficient. Paul's telling them, no, Jesus is your perfect sacrifice. There's no other perfect sacrifice. Repent and put your faith in him. The Jews thought that the law could save them. And Paul says, no, Jesus is the only one who fulfills the law perfectly. You can't be saved by the law. You must be saved by Jesus. The Jews were saying, we have circumcision as a sign of our covenant relationship with God. And Paul says, no, in Christ alone you can have a circumcision of the heart where your sin is cut away from you and is no longer counted against you. The Jews are saying, we have Abraham as our father. And Paul says, no, you don't. If that were true, you would be obeying like Abraham and doing the works of God. But your father's the devil. Your only hope is faith in Christ. In a sense, he sounds a bit like John the Baptist, a voice crying out in the wilderness that all should repent and be baptized. This is an unimaginable opportunity for a bunch of hypocritical moralizers who are steeped in a life of sin that God visits them in kindness and offers them the opportunity to repent. Do you realize that that's everyone's story in here? Not a single person in here got their life together and then came to God and said, okay, I'm clean and I'm ready. Everyone in here was met in your rampant, defiant sin and unrighteousness, and God met you with kindness. So what are two potential application points this morning? This can be kind of tricky because you might be like, okay, Scott, I'm not an ethnic Israelite, so what's the application this morning? How does this work for me? I don't presume upon my heritage of Jewishness that I'm saved. So, so how does this work for me? And, and I think there's at least a few things. So there, there's really two application points with a couple little details in them. The first is this. The reality of inescapable judgment should cause us to repent and obey. Even if you're saved. The reality of inescapable judgment should cause us to repent and obey. So as opposed to practicing that life of sinfulness and arrogance and pride and deceit and evil and murder, as opposed to practicing that we should practice repentance and practice obedience. So here's one particular point. First, don't look upon white supremacists in judgment if there's any ounce of racism or superiority or presumption or supposing or double standards in your heart. As I read through the news this morning, there was part of me that thought, oh, I don't want to be identified as a human being with those human beings. It's so ugly. It's so arrogant. And it's not fitting for us to look upon the white supremacists that cause all this heartache and even death in the last 24 hours and say, shame if there is any ounce of racism in your heart, if there's any ounce of presumption in your heart, if there's any ounce of arrogance and pride and a lack of humility in your heart, and here's the reality, you live in Hunt County. If you look long enough, you'll probably find it. You can have some experience you look back on that makes you feel a certain way of superiority above other people. 
If you look hard enough, you'll find that all of us have some double standards. All of us have some level of arrogance that causes us to look at someone as though we're better. A proper response this morning is repent of that. Drag that into the light. For some of you, your daddy's a racist, your granddaddy was a racist, and your great-granddaddy was a racist. When God changes that, you know what he calls that? He calls those men patriarchs that he raises up to change the direction of a generation. So it's fitting to consider this morning if you have any of those things in your heart because the reality of inescapable judgment should cause us to practice repentance and obedience. The second part of that first application point is this. Don't presume or suppose that because you're saved, you don't need to repent of your sin and move in in obedience anymore. Don't presume, I'm saved, so I repented, and I said I had the intention to be obedient, and that's enough. That's a wrong presumption, according to God's word. Don't presume and suppose that because you're saved, that God can no longer have any expectation upon your life. What greater motivation can we have to obey beyond the fact that we're saved? Let me say that again. I want you to get that. What greater motivation could we possibly have to repent and obey than the fact that we are saved, that God met us in our mess with kindness? Saved people should regularly be saying, God, how can I serve you and how can I serve others for you? That's, that's the life, that's the practice of saved people. God, how can I be of use to you and your kingdom, God? Every morning, God, what do you want me to stop doing, God? Is, what's getting in the way? Every morning, God, what do you want me to start doing? How can I serve you? Oh, what a joy it is to be saved. How can I serve the one who has saved me? How can I serve the one who has shown me kindness in the midst of my mess? So we should repent and obey. And the second application point for this morning (laughs) is urge others to repent and obey. We should do that. And so that we're not hypocrites, we should do that and then urge others to do that. Some of us don't ever want to urge others to repent and obey because we are so aware of the hypocrisy in our own lives. Do you know how to get rid of that hypocrisy? Repent and obey. Do you see that? So it's like, who am I to talk to that guy about his sin? I do the same thing every day. Stop doing the same thing every day. Repent and obey. Because that's keeping you. Scripture says remove the log from your own eye. It's a, it's a funny illustration. Remove the two by four from your own eye so that you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. So that you can show kindness. The reality of inescapable judgment should cause us to urge others to repent and obey. So many professing Christians in our country, and maybe more particularly in Hunt County, I've been here for 14 years, I've knocked on hundreds of doors, and I've heard hundreds of stories, and many of them are very, very similar. So many say that they are saved and can often tell you the date that it happened, but then they often presume and suppose that because they are saved, that God no longer has any expectation upon their lives. You ask them about their testimony, and all they have to tell you is something that happened 20 years ago. There's nothing fresh. There's nothing new. Because you have to understand, that is not an anomaly in our community. The same way what Paul was addressing in these Jews was not an anomaly. It was kind of a rampant thing. This is a rampant thing in our community. I am saved. I got saved on this date. But then this presumption and supposition that God doesn't have any expectation upon my life. Oftentimes you'll talk with people and they're certain of their salvation. It's like they're screaming at Paul and Jesus, I'm in! I'm good! Back off! But there's no striving to put sin to death. There's no involvement in the local church. There's no accountability. There's no service to other people. Rather, there's presuming and supposing that actions don't matter because I already got saved. Ironically, most of the people who do this are the most disgusted. Something I've heard in my conversations with people is they're really disgusted with the hypocrisy of the church. (laughs) Often citing it as a main reason that they don't go. Oh, you don't go to church because of the hypocrisy? You're a hypocrite for not going. Do you see how that works out? Like, that's funny. 
Like, you really hate hypocrisy, huh? Do you realize what you're doing by saying, I'm not going to be a part of those sinners? You're a sinner. That's a double standard. You're saying, I shouldn't have to do what they do that they should have to do. And it's hypocrisy. So if you ever get frustrated with hypocrisy, which I do, I mean, I get frustrated with small doses of hypocrisy. When you see rampant hypocrisy of people who are being arrogant above and beyond other people, even races, what do we do? When you encounter such people, take your lead from Paul. Usually they're an easy target because the hypocrisy is easy. The double standard's obvious. Our children can usually point it out. But rather than seizing on the opportunity to pass your own judgment, do what Paul did and let their sin be a vehicle that proves their need for Jesus. Do what Paul did in Romans 2. And don't let the main thing get lost in the hypocrisy, but use the hypocrisy as an example and a, and a vehicle to get to the gospel. Help them to marvel that even in their unrighteousness, God, unrighteousness, God offers kindness, forgiveness through repentance and faith. We have to remember, especially as we've been talking about evangelism lately, it's far more helpful to offer sick people a remedy for their sickness than to scream at them about how sick they are. You can't beat someone over the head with a protest sign that says God is love. It doesn't work. They're not going to believe your sign because they're bleeding from it. This is the reality that drove Paul and one that should drive us. Sinners can relate to sinners easily. I mean, if, if you're heartbroken over some of the things that are going on in our, in our world, n- nuclear stuff, threats, Guam, people in Guam having to turn on the news and be informed not to look at the flash... Those are people because a dictator thinks he is better. If you see that and you're heartbroken, if you see these white supremacists stirring up all kinds of division and heartache and you see death from it and you see calamity from it and you see confusion from it, just remember, you can relate to the worst dictator. You can relate to the grossest supremacist. They are sinners. We are sinners. Paul knew that. Paul's addressing all this gross, terrible stuff, and he refers to himself as the chief of sinners. It helps him to love people. It helps him to show kindness to people. We can relate to all the other sinners easily. So here's the little closing point. If God's kindness is meant to lead people to repentance... Don't let your lack of kindness chase them away. Okay? If God's forbearance and patience is meant to lead people to repentance, don't let your lack of self-control and your impatience get in the way of what God is doing. Rather, act as an image bearer. One who shouldn't even be an image bearer, but you are because of Christ. Act as one who knows their sin, has been rescued from it, and is an image bearer. So what that means, I think, is this. Your kindness and patience is something that God intends to show his kindness and patience to to sinners who are in need of a Savior. We cannot think that if God does it this way, that we can do it this way. We need to get in step with the Holy Spirit, humble ourselves before God and say, God, you have saved me. How do you want to use me? And then you follow in his kindness, you follow in his forbearance, and you follow in his patience. Next week, we're going to talk about God's judgment and how it's impartial and according to works. I encourage you to read ahead. Let's pray as we prepare to take the supper. Lord, I confess that um, even preaching through these verses, it feels tricky. There's so many things that can be the main thing, but but the main thing is that everyone needs Jesus. Lord, I pray that we would marvel at what we have in Christ and that we would repent of any arrogance or any superiority that we carry in our hearts and that we would seek the well-being of others as we move in holiness. Help us to be kind 
and help us to never forget what's been done for us in Christ. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The next verse in Romans 2 says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The instruction that we're given through the Corinthian church when we take the supper is one to examine yourselves. And so in light of what we've heard this morning, I want to encourage you to examine yourself. Consider, are there any parts of your heart that are hard and impenitent, that are unrepentant, and that are moving forward in unrighteousness? And as we distribute the elements, I want to encourage you to repent, to take those things to God. I think too often we can go through the motions of, oh, we're taking the supper again. It's almost lunchtime. Sweet. It's a little early. It's not too bad. And we get so distracted. You have an opportunity. Every time we take the supper, we're looking back on what God has done. We're anticipating what he is going to do, and we are examining ourselves. The, the root problem of what was going on in Romans 2 was hard and impenitent heart. Consider all that you've heard. Consider anything that God wants to convict you in. And spend some time in reflection and in prayer as we distribute the elements to make sure that we can take them rightly according to God's design. Let's distribute the elements.